Amen. Praise the Lord. I love that song. You can be seated this morning. I specifically wanted to sing that song this morning, uh, particularly because of the doctrinal relevance of that song. And that song is steeped in orthodox theology and doctrine. And that is vitally important for us as followers and believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm all for a song that touches the emotions, that, that fills the heart with certain amounts of joy and, and uh, eloquence in its, in its singing, in its, its sentimental meaning to our hearts as we sing them. But our, our music also needs to be uh, theological in its, in its usage, in its expression. And that's, that's uh, given to us in that song. And that's kind of, I, pick, I picked that song because over the next several weeks here, we're going to be looking at the book of the little epistle of Jude. And we're going to work our way through this one chapter uh, book. But Jude is, as we'll see in a moment, Jude is a book that is very much about the defense of the faith about its doctrinal importance, about the things that we believe that are so vital uh, to our lives as believers and how important it is not to waver on what the Word of God says. And so we're going to spend several weeks in this little epistle of Jude and I want us to pick up reading there in Jude 1, or verse number 1, there's only one chapter, so Jude 1, 1 through 4. And I want us to look today, uh, I think on these, the identification in Jude. Here in these first four verses, Jude identifies things that are going to be vitally important to the remainder of his letter. And so we'll pick up reading in Jude 1 and verse number 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men, cryptian unawares, who, are, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here in these first four verses, Jude begins to identify certain things. And that's where we're going to start in this little epistle. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. Every time that it is open, it has something to say to me. Every time it is open, it has something to say to all of us. And so, Father, this morning, uh, although I know of no reason particularly 
uh, that I am aiming at. God, you just directed my heart back to this book of Jude. I want us to, uh, for you to take this and inoculate us. Let this be good, defensive, preventative medicine for the future. God, I pray you would teach us from your word that we would be defenders, those that defend the faith that is once for all given to the saints. Father, I pray that we would be orthodox, that we would, that we would be by the Bible in what we believe. God, I pray that you would show us the importance of knowing what we believe. God, I pray that it also for those hearts that may be in this room without the Lord Jesus, they have no assurance that if they drew their last breath, they would be in the presence of God. Oh God, I pray you'd use the Word of God to pierce the heart, to draw them to faith in Christ. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I want you to take your mind and go on a little imaginary journey with me. Imagine that you are going to be staying in a very, very fancy, expensive uh, uh, hotel. And uh, it's one of those, I mean, really nice ones. Like when you pull up, there's a guy that wants to take your car and park it for you. There's a bellhop that opens the trunk automatically and he grabs your bags. And he carries them all the way to the desk as you walk into the beautiful, uh, the beautiful hotel. It's it's very it's very just breathtaking in its beauty. It's it's a huge room with all kinds of greenery and plants and 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 gilded uh, uh, gilded seatings. I, I mean, it is top of the line. You go to the the sign in desk and and there is a, a man there in a tuxedo. And he, he, asks, he doesn't ask you. He knows who you are. Uh, he, oh, Mr. Brown, it is good to have you. Glad you're here to check in. And he signs you in in a moment's notice, no hiccup, quickly as possible. He rings for the bell, hop to continue to carry your bags. You, you're on your way to the presidential suite. You're going to that, walking towards that majestic uh, elevator, and you look to the left, and there's a banquet hall. And as you pass by, you see that it is absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous. There are, there are gorgeous flowers that array the table. There is all kinds of fruits that are laying around that table. I mean, all kinds of bananas and apples and cherries arranged. Just beautiful. I mean, and it makes you hungry. It just, it's so beautiful. It makes you begin to drool. You can almost taste some of that fruit. So, it's being a big fancy restaurant like that, a big fancy hotel. Then they're not going to miss an apple. So you sweep over by and the table and the bellhop waits for you. He gives you a, 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 that's, a that's okay look. And you, you grab the apple in your hand and you shine it on the side. And you're going into the elevator. And when you get inside the elevator, you take a big bite of that apple. And you are shocked at what you taste. It is not the sweet and juicy pulp that you were expecting from an apple, but it is that chalky, dull, chewy substance that is wax. You picked up a, it may have, it may have felt like an apple, it shined like an apple. When you rubbed it on your sleeve, it shined, you know. It, was, it had the consistency, the weight of one. The color was just right. But the reality is, 
What was on the outside did not truly portray what's on the inside. It was a fake. It was a phony. It was just for show. It was a sham. It was a charade. You know, this may be the stuff of, of funny stories, but, but in reality, it is a symbol of what takes place all the time in the religious world. Brands and stripes of various theologies try to pass themselves off as the real deal. They couch their false doctrine in large, ornate facilities or quaint, beautiful little chapels. The finery of their organization, the excellency of their service is impressive and commendable. They are elite and confident in their beliefs and vision statements. But when it gets right down to what they are peddling, no amount of elegant drapery or elaborate uh, decoration can disguise the taste of that which is false. False. Except, if you had never tasted an apple before, let's just say, for instance, if you had never tasted an apple before and you picked up that wax apple and you bit into it and you chewed it and swallowed it, you may have said to yourself, that's the worst fruit I have ever ate in my life. I will never eat another apple again. Hey, you may not have recognized that it was a fake, a phony. You see, some people don't know the taste of what is real so that they can recognize when the counterfeit is brought by. You know, that's what they always say at the bank. That's what I've heard over and over again at the bank. You know, they don't teach people about, uh, about fake money or counterfeit money. They make them consistently handle the real deal. Because if you handle the real deal long enough, you'll spot a fake in a heartbeat. And that's true not only of counterfeits and money, but it's also true of the truth of the Word of God. You see, many people don't know any better. They think that the bitter and bland substance is what real religion is supposed to be. And they are easily duped and fooled and are seduced and taken captive unawares. That is the point that Jude is, taking, uh, is, is talking about in his letter. Now, the truth is that this uh, subject that Jude is addressing obviously is not a recent phenomenon. It has, it has gone on since not only Jude's day, but even further back. It's gone on since Satan hissed at Eve, Eve hath God said. This is why this little epistle of Jude is so vitally important. It's a flashing warning sign. It's a, it's a sign of, of revel, a, a road sign of revelation reminding us not to be fooled. And in these first few verses of introduction, 
Jude sets the table, so to speak. He gives us an introduction to the main characters of this enlightening story. In these first few verses, I want us to identify five characters that will run through this letter. Five characters that really reveal to us the basis of this letter that calls us to earnestly contend for the faith. I think it's one of the most poignant aspects of this letter. Poignant words. It comes in our it comes in our text too. In verse number 3, we should earnestly contend for the faith. That's what he's doing with this letter. And that's what we should do in our hearts and lives as well. So I want us to notice, first of all, the first character is the servant. We start with the introduction. The first word in our text is Jude. Now, whereas most of our letters, we sign the letter at the bottom, if you're writing the letter in, in this Western culture, you don't start with your name, you sign it at the end. You, you start with the name of who it's to, dear so-and-so. Um, it's being lost in our day. I, I don't even know if they teach children letter writing anymore. Uh, most emails don't address who you're talking to because they know it because it ends up in your inbox. So there's really no need to say, dear so-and-so, comma, new, a new paragraph, indention, and start writing. But in this day and time in which Jude is writing, Letters are, and epistles start with the author first. You read that in all the Pauline epistles, is that it starts with his name first. And no, that's no different here. New Testament epistles, they identify the author of the letter when they start. Now the author of this letter, his name is Jude. Now, this is a Hebrew name uh, that would uh, be, it is a, is a Greekized Hebrew name. We would know the Hebrew name as Judah. Judah. You know who Judah was? Judah is the fourth born son of the patriarch Jacob in the Old Testament. Judah from whose lineage came King David and whose lineage came the Messiah himself, Jesus. But it also is a name of <coughs> the allergies Drying me out. Sorry. Excuse me. But also this Jude name is a name of infamy. For another Greek rendering of this name of Judah is Judas. Judas. You know, there's a lot of, it seems like this day and time, more and more flunky names of kids. Nobody's named John anymore. Bill, Ted, you know, they're all very different fluky names. But despite that, people still don't name their kids Judas. You see, but in the days of the Lord Jesus, before Judas' betrayal, Judah was a, Judas was a prominent name, just like Jesus' name, Yeshua, Jesus, uh, Joshua, is the Hebrew version of the name Jesus, which is a Latinized or Greekized name uh, for the Messiah, Jesus. So uh, Judah was a common name, or Judas was a common name. Uh, uh, as it should have been with Judah being a prominent figure in Jewish history and prophecy. 
As a matter of fact, there are two Judases in Jesus' 12 disciples. You know there's more than one. Oftentimes they make the distinguish, not Judas Iscariot. Iscariot was the one that betrayed Jesus, but there was another Judas, and they oftentimes distinguish between the two in the Scriptures. But who is this Jew? Who is the author of this letter? Now, there are many suggestions for the authorship of this letter that I will not go into. And you'll find that as you study in deep theology and, and get into some of the more scholastically uh, scholastic writings in certain, uh, certain universities and colleges and, and in-depth studies, you will find that there are certain disputations about who wrote certain scriptures and who wrote certain authors. And, and this, this book of uh, this epistle of Jude is no exception. But the general consensus, and I believe well-supported theory, is that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Why is he the half-brother? Because Jesus was born of the, uh, of the uh, incarnation of Mary. His father was not Joseph. His father was not a Roman soldier, as many have tried to, uh, to disparage his origins by saying, no, Jesus was born of the Holy Ghost coming upon Mary and, and, and her giving birth to Jesus that way. All of Jesus' other brothers and children come by the union of Mary and her husband Joseph. And so Jude here is, is most identified as the half-brother of Jesus and the full brother of James. Do you know who? And notice he says in his letter, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Well, who's he talking to? Who's he talking about James? Well, James was a prominent figure, an authoritative figure in the early, early church uh, as well. James was the pastor of that first uh, church. Uh, James was one that came to faith in Jesus Christ later. You see, during the ministry of the Lord Jesus, none of his brothers believed him to be the Messiah. They thought he was crazy. Even his mother, during his ministry, thought Jesus had gone too far and thought him mad. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we're told that the resurrection of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ, he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. So after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to James, and therefore James became a believer in the Lord Jesus. Wasn't until then. His brothers weren't followers of him. They weren't part of his disciples. In many instances, they were against him. But after the resurrection, James became a, a believer. And obviously, he believed on Christ after this event and became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. You read the book of Acts, it is James that is front and center. Not James of James and John. Uh, the James of James and John, the two brothers of uh, sons of Zebedee, that James was martyred. He was, one of the, he was the first martyr <coughs> of the church. And so... Um, Excuse me. And so, but James became the pastor of that church in Jerusalem. 
In Matthew 13, 55, the people of Jesus' hometown said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Judas being named last would have indicated that Judas was the youngest of Jesus' brothers. And so Jude was probably led to faith in Jesus Christ by the witness of James who the Lord Jesus appeared to and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now although doubtless he would have been given much respect by the early church and, and could well have done quite a bit of... You ever been around somebody that name dropped? I know Governor so-and-so, you know, name drop. I know the sheriff. You know, me and the sheriff are when first name. But you ever seen somebody name drop? Boy, you think about Jude. He's the youngest brother of Jesus. You talk about somebody that could name drop. Well, you know, I know Jesus before you guys ever even saw him. He was, he's my, matter of fact, Jesus is my half-brother. He, he, we all lived in the same... Did I know? Did I ever tell you I grew up with you? I mean, he could name drop like that and, and really, uh, really kind of throw his weight around. But he doesn't do that. He calls himself, in verse number 1, the servant of Jesus Christ. Obviously, the brother of James would denote him as being from that family. But he didn't say, I'm the brother of Jesus and of James. He said, I'm the servant. That word servant indicates a bond slave. He's not just, he doesn't rank himself up. He doesn't set himself high as a ranking of a, a person in the church. He calls himself a bond servant. Someone uh, that serves others. Do you remember when Jesus was ministering? And his mother and brothers came to try to talk sense into him. They told Jesus that his mother and brothers were outside wanting to speak with him. And Jesus said in Mark 3, 34 and 35, And he looked around about, round about on, wit, on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed all that. At one point, they're trying to take him in and put him in the psych ward because he's just gone mad. He's gone crazy. Something needs to be done about that, Mom. Mary, you've got to do something. And everything changes after the resurrection. Jude becomes a believer in Jesus, and by virtue of being a believer, he sees what he truly is a servant, a bond slave of Jesus. What was most important to Jude was not his natural relationship with the Lord through his mother, but his spiritual relationship with the Lord through his heavenly Father. <laughs> it's not about his family, it's about his Father, uh, Jesus' Father. My question to you this morning what is more important with you? Your earthly relationships or your heavenly relationships? If anybody could have had stature or status among the people of God, it would have been Jude. And Jude says, no, I'm a bondservant. I'm a foot washer. I, I, I'm the lowest of the low. All of us ought to have that 
that added. What did Paul tell us in Philippians? Preferring one another above ourselves. Notice that we talks about the servant here. Now, the second of all, the second character I want you to see is the Savior. The Savior. Look at verse number 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. But notice, second of all, he says the servant of Jesus Christ. Jude identifies himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. Jude had bowed himself down to his elder brother who was the son of God. No doubt when Jude penned the name on the parchment of his letter, a flood of memories came into his mind. Boyhood memories of the character and nature of Jesus he knew from his home in Nazareth. He could, have, he could well have told stories of Jesus in that home life. Those scenes are so shrouded in mystery. You ever seen that? You ever noticed that? So much of the boyhood life of Jesus is shrouded in in mystery, we have one gleaming, one gleaming portrayal of Jesus as a twelve-year boy, year old boy in the temple, but nothing else beyond that. There has never been a better, bigger brother than Jesus to Jude. No one as kind as Jesus. No one as thoughtful. No one as upright as Jesus. But speaking of Jesus as a brother would no doubt brought Jesus down to a level on par with many men. Even to the level of Jude. So Jude is making it clear that Jesus is the altogether other. He could have identified himself as a brother, but he said, Jesus is the one I serve. He was he was Jesus, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Jude, human in every likeness, but he was also Christ. He was also the anointed of God, the Messiah of God, the sent one from God, the long-awaited deliverer. Jude viewed himself as that bond slave more than he did as a brother. He was the servant of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus at the last supper took a towel and a basin and washed his disciples' feet saying in John 13, 14, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. I think we can draw a similar lesson from Jude here. If Jude, the biological counterpart of the Lord Jesus, who could have easily pulled rank and threw his weight around because of his natural relationship to Jesus, called himself a servant, called himself a bond slave. What business do we have trying to pull rank on our brothers and sisters within the body of Christ? You ever been around? Well, I, you know, I've been around so many people. Well, you know, my dad was a preacher. My, my, my dad was this, or my, my mom was, was this, or... Or you've been, well, don't you, you, you should know I'm a deacon around here, you know. I'm a mover and shaker. I'm an elder. I'm a Sunday school superintendent. Well, I, well, I'm a founding member of this church. There's always that sense of trying to pull rank on someone else. Jude doesn't do that. 
and the examples for us, that kind of mindset of a servant of Jesus Christ. This is a kind of high-minded attitude that brings about the whole reason for this letter. False doctrine, apostasy, refusal to relent to the revealed Word of God. All fault. I was listening to a fellow the other day, and he was so right when he said all of sin, every route of, of, of ripened sin in the life of a believer or a person in this world, all has its essence in pride. Lifting myself above the law. Saying the rules don't apply to me. Sin always is rooted in pride. That's exactly what we do not see in Jude. He's not very, he could have pulled rank, but he didn't. But that's what he deals with. That's where it comes from. An attitude to raise oneself up above the Word of God. Thirdly, the saints. The saints. We have the servant, the Savior, the saints. Look at verse number 2. A brother of James to them that are sanctified by, by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Jude is writing this letter to the church. Those who are genuinely born in the family of God. Notice he, used the, he, he, he called them sanctified. That word is equivalent to to the word saints. Sometimes it's rendered saints. Now, the Catholic Church has done great damage, I believe, in their, in their, uh, how do they, the beautification, I believe is the process, where they, they take a minister, they take a figure in the church, and they raise them up to a status of sainthood. It, it, like it's something that is achieved. You know, I, you know, I think the rules are they have to perform three miracles. They have to do these certain checklists. And if they do those certain checklists, ding, 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 they all of a sudden become a saint. But that's not what the Bible teaches. According to the Word of God, not the tradition of man, but the Bible, a saint is anyone who has been set apart sanctified, set apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had this, this, uh, this truth come heavy on me on Friday. I, I'm scrolling through Facebook and, you know, all your, your Christian friends, they like to share these memes, real pithy memes real quick. And one of my friends shared one uh, from supposedly a quote from Leonard Ravenhill, although I'm not so sure about that, but Leonard Ravenhill was a, an evangelist. I'm not going to go into the story, but a great evangelist in church history. But Leonard Ravenhill was supposed to have said, you won't become a saint by studying your Bible. You'll become a saint by living it. I read that and something didn't sound right. And I had several other Christian friends just kind of say that again for the folks in the back kind of thing. and Say it right, park right there, kind of kind of adding in on that. The reality is that you don't become a saint by your effort. You don't become a saint by studying your Bible. And you don't become a saint by living your
your Bible. Sainthood is the gift of the new birth. We become sanctified by the indwelling Spirit of God which takes place when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not the, you know, it's not the most... (laughs) It's hard, you, know, you shouldn't say it in mixed company, but you're looking at St. Ronnie Brown. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. This is St. Ronnie Brown. That's St. Jackie Chambers. That's St. Pam Chambers. And on and on we could go. I'm not going to name everybody. But, but if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you know Him as saving faith, you are a saint. He's talking to that blood-bought, born-again family of God. If you're saved this morning, then you're set apart. Jesus told a bunch of Pharisees one time that ye are of your father, the devil. Before coming to Christ, you belong to the God of this world. But by the good news of Jesus Christ, your faith in Him, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Satan anymore. You've been adopted. You've been placed. You've had a new birth into the family of God. And therefore, you're part of of the saints of God. That's why when Paul wrote, when Paul, and I don't get how the Catholic Church gets away with this, when Paul wrote his letter, he said to the saints at Corinth, or the saints at Colossae, surely he's not talking about a, a group of hand-picked people that have performed three miracles and said a bunch of things and wrote some books. Or no! He's talking about every blood-bought, born-again child of God. The saints. The saints. The people of God. Peter made it clear that we are separated from that old life unto a new. In 1 Peter 2.9, listen to what he said. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That don't mean strange That does not mean that you're peculiar, strange. It means procured. It means bought. Not weird. Bought people. You're a bought people that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of the darkness unto His marvelous light. You are not your own anymore. You are bought with a price. You are in the family of God. Therefore, you are sanctified, set apart from this world. You are saints. And Jude describes them, notice this, to them that are sanctified by God, saints by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Preserved in Jesus Christ. That word preserved means protected, guarded. The word means to be carefully guarded, to be treasured, to be watched over with the greatest of care. Salvation doesn't come and go with the whim of my feelings. Salvation is not a win-loss column where I had more wins today than I did losses today. Salvation is that secure position of being in Christ, chosen from the foundation of the world, that's Bible, chosen in Him, and upon the stage of time, justify I've been called and been called I've received that call I've been saved I've been justified sanctified and glorified Paul gives us that in Romans chapter number 8 but here he talks about those that are preserved kept 
If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you're born again, it's not, it doesn't come and go like the wind. You're in His family. Forever in His family. There's so much Bible in the New Testament to teach us that we are saved and secure. Brother Ronnie, you, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Well, if you're really saved, yes. Some people have, may take that moniker and, uh, and say, well, I, I did that, I said that on, 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 on vacation Bible school when I was six years old. It has no impart in their life. It has no impact on how they live or who they are. I'm not saying we're by work. I'm saved by works, but I am saying we're saved by saved. We have a salvation that does work. We're, we're, and so someone say, "Well, I, I was saved then, and they live like the devil. They don't have anything to God or give uh, have anything to do with God. They have nothing to do with this church. Nothing to. I have every reason to question whether that's really saved." If that's what you mean by saved, then no, I don't believe saved, once saved, always saved. But someone that is genuinely repented, put their faith and trust in Jesus, yes, they're saved and eternally secure. 2 Timothy 4.8 And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul reiterated to Timothy that he is eternally saved, eternally secure. When he writes those that are called, in verse number 1, that call rings out over the whole planet. It, generally speaking, that call rings out to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's the call of the gospel. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It's a universal call. But it's an effectual call in those that respond and believe. But when we obey that, when we obey that call, when we respond to that call, then we become the called of God unto Himself. He called us to labor for Him, and we, we that know Christ are the called. Jude emphasizes this as an antidote against the corrupt deception that was infiltrating the church. You and I that truly know Christ are sanctified, preserved and called and called are safe in Jesus Christ. And by virtue of this standing of belonging to God through through uh, uh, belonging to God at what at what spiritual uh, ingredients can be increased in your life. Oh, that's what I'm getting to here. Look at verse number two. Because we are sanctified, because we are preserved and called, look at these ingredients that come into our life. Mercy upon you. Peace and love be multiplied. Because of our chosenness in Him, because we are been sanctified and made saints, these ingredients infiltrate our lives. Aren't you glad for God's mercy? His mercy. Mercy is withholding that which we rightfully deserve. The things that God takes away that we rightfully deserve. Peace. Peace that the world knows nothing about. The peace that is the experience of those that know there is a God in heaven that is in complete control. Those that know that they are at no longer in odds against God. 
but I have found peace with God. And he talks about love. Isn't that what the world sings about? I remember in the 80s, there were so many, so many rock songs about, about love and finding love and what love is. Love. That's what this world look, uh, sings about. It's what the movies are made about. It's what psych- people go to psychologists seeking. Trade partners like socks trying every experience on this planet to try to find genuine love. And yet it is the daily reality of every child of God. We wake up in the morning knowing that God loves us. That we are His own chosen people. That He has an affection to such a degree that He would give His own Son to die for us on the cross. This is the genuine article. This is what the false religionist is trying to replicate but can never authenticate. The servant, the Savior, the saints. Now look fourthly at the subject. The subject. Verse number 3, he gets into the subject of his letter. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Once delivered unto the saints. That once there is once for all delivered to the saints. Jude wanted to write to these believers about the common salvation. Now common, <laughs> common doesn't mean uh, boring. When he says common, he's not talking about boring or run of the mill. He's talking about the, the salvation experience that all those saints have experienced. They have that in common. Jude wanted to talk to them about being saved. Jude wanted to talk to them about the thing most important to him, his salvation. I like to talk to people about a lot of things, but there is, there is one thing that is music to my heart. It is hearing about someone's salvation. Someone's salvation. I, uh, you know, several, a couple months ago, I had my good friend Robbie Jackson. Robbie Jackson preached for us, and I love Robbie, and he brought a great message. I, I just, what a phenomenal message that he brought but I love Robbie and every time I call Robbie you know hey Robbie how you doing and without fail without fail his his response all the way back from 2002 has been this I'm fine I'm doing good thanks to Jesus I don't care who asks him that that's his response I'm doing good thanks to Jesus You know what what he means by that? He is referring to the fact of the change that Jesus has brought in his life when he was saved by him. I'm doing a whole lot better now than I was when I wasn't saved. Thanks to Jesus, I'm doing great. Jude says it's a common salvation. I'm sure that we all have our salvation testimonies that are colored with different events and different settings and different characters and different words. I, I was saved. I give my testimony several times. I was saved by driving a car, driving down I-75 on my way to practice after a Sunday night church service. I, I'd left and in that car somewhere around Barrett Parkway, I'm, I'm having a conversation with God back and forth about, about my life and, 
and what's happened and what's taking place and do I really know the Lord? And it was in that car that I put my faith and trust in Jesus. No doubt I've heard some of your stories. They vary in different instances and different times and different characters come in and out. And so all of our stories have a tendency to be a bit different. But we all come in at the same spot. The, only, the place where every one of us became a child of God is the same place. That's at Calvary. We came by the blood of Jesus. Whatever you're standing or class, high or low, if you got in at all, you got in at the cross. You got in at where Jesus died for your sin. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the common place, the common salvation, the common point of entry for us into the family of God. But he, he couldn't write to them about that. I, I like that. I, I'm just like every preacher. I want to preach messages that will cause people to jump up and down and woo and shout and, and uh, oh boy, I like those, those pat back, pats on the back. Boy, that helped me. Man, that was so good, Brother Ronnie. Uh, and I, I like when people respond and say amen and, and get all into it and cry and shout with joy. Uh, man, I can't get enough of that, but I can't always do that. The phrase in this verse it was needful is the most it's, it's, it's a phrase in the most urgent sense some render it I was constrained I had to write to you about this I have to admit it we're in for some rocky terrain in the next few weeks Jude is an ugly book it is a scathing book Sometimes you've just got to bring the hard message, the difficult truth, because it is needful. Not going to be many pats on the back. Not going to be a lot of shouting and amen or whatever. Not going to be a lot of reaction. It's going to be a lot of head scratching. It's going to be a lot of squirming. It's going to be a lot of, a, a lot of uh, uh, thought putting in after Maybe even a vote. I don't, I don't know. After it's over. I, the truth of the matter is, it's a hard message, but it's needful. What was this urgent message? What was the most needful? Look at what he says. I found it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye earnestly contend for the faith. To contend means to fight for, to strive for. To struggle for. The faith once delivered to the saints is the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. It has been entrusted to the church to guard and protect the true message that saves souls. The true message that changes lives. The message that is to be trumpeted throughout the whole earth. The faith once delivered to the saints. We are to guard against those that see the chief doctrines of Christianity to be repulsive, to be backward, to be absurd, and want to discard them in favor of humanism, psychology, and the blending of other religious philosophies. We are not going to take this lying down. That is the whole point of this message. It is a call to arms. 
It is a call to recognize false doctrine when it appears. It is a warning siren that the enemy is in the midst. Be alert, be alarmed to contend with those who they uh, with with who they are and what they are trying to do. Here's his message. Be alert. Be wise. Get listen, you you can't be caught off guard by people that are infiltrating the church with false doctrine. The servant, the Savior, the saints, the subject, last of all, the subversive. Look at verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who wore who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of, of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is a call to the believer to contend for the faith, to struggle for the faith. But most of all, this letter is an uncovering. How can we contend for the faith to study what the Word of God says? How do you prevent yourself from being carried away and seduced by false teachers that are ever attempting to infiltrate the church of the living God? Know your Bible. Know your Bible. Jude is uncovering these men. He is exposing them for who they really are. Notice they crept in unawares. Crept in unawares. These men don't come marching down the aisle announcing their their differing views of doctrine to the church. No, they come through the side door. They, They pull believers aside during fellowship suffers and quietly introduce their subversive doctrines. Several years ago when I pastored in Rossville, this was not long after I'd been there, probably about a two or three years after I'd been there, there was a fellow that just showed up one Sunday morning. A nondescript guy, seemed, seemed likable enough, come up to me and made a lot of friendly conversation, had overtures uh, kind of insinuating that he wanted to work with the youth of the church and and I was, I was somewhat cautious. I wasn't an idiot by any stretch of the imagination. And so I was, you know, well, we'll see about that in the future. And, and uh, well, you just, you know, stay faithful and, and uh, you know, be with us. Let's worship together and feel each other out. And then, you know, we'll see how things play out in the future. But uh, he talked glowingly about how much he wanted to do for the Lord. And it wasn't long before I found out he began to talk to others about polygamy and minimizing the deity of Jesus Christ in conversations with other members of our church. He quickly, after a matter of a few months, made his quiet exit. But that's how it happened. That's how this infiltration happens. They come in with an agenda. They come in with a hobby horse that they want to make sure that everybody else can can be a part of, can can say amen to. They have a specific glant, uh, a specific glance of a doctrine that is uh, that is unorthodox in its in its origins. 
Notice in this verse 4 that they were of old ordained to condemnation. Jude in the coming verses is going to show uh, that these apostates are not Johnny-come-latelys. They're nothing more than a retread of an old heresy. Jude is saying that what these men are selling, man, it's been around a long time. It's been condemned for a very, very long time. It's nothing new. It certainly is true when it comes to any new heresy coming down the pipe uh, that what Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, there is nothing new under the sun. I like Dr. Jerry Vines. He said it well. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. That's true. The revelation of Scripture long ago condemns these men. They are ungodly. They are unlike God. They are deniers of God. And what is the sin of these heretics? What is the bone that, that Jude is picking with these people? What are these, what are these the infiltrators? What are they exactly doing? Well, it's not necessarily polygamy like that fellow that came in, but it is about the deity of Jesus Christ, which nine times out of ten, every false doctrine has that characteristic about that. They'll minimize the deity of Jesus Christ right off the bat. But look at what he says here. Turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, there are, like they said, there's twofold. Here's his bone to pick. It's twofold. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first. First, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Peter uses this same word translated lasciviousness as the phrase filthy lifestyle. It's translated filthy lifestyle. And it's describing the people of Sodom. Now get that. That's key. The word denotes excess. A lack of moderation. Absence of restraint and wantonness. This is turning the good, unmerited favor of God into an occasion or a permission to sin. These men basically say, if God's grace is greater than all my sin, the more I sin, the more God will exhibit His grace. You want more grace? Do more sin. John Phillips said this, and I love this quote. Listen to what he said. Jude uses the word to show how apostates take a total and complete perversion of the doctrine of, make a total and complete conversion, a perversion of the doctrine of grace. They change the very doctrine that should lead believers into lives of grateful holiness into an excuse for indulging one's evil nature. The testimony of Scripture stands in complete opposition to this teaching. Listen, Titus 2, 1 and 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodly lusts and worldly lusts, ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Is there anything in that verse that would give you a license to sin? Does grace give you a license to sin? 
No, Titus said it teaches us not to sin. Romans 5, 6, 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Does Paul say that you can sin as you will because of the grace of God? No. But these teachers lead others astray by taking one passage of Scripture out of its context and to the exclusion of numerous passages that clearly refute their argument. This is what false teachers do. They take a passage of Scripture. Rarely will they come to you without some Bible. They'll take a passage of Scripture, divorce it from its context, take it in portions of cutting away everything else and say, look, this is what the Bible says. And people that don't know no better, oh, okay, I follow. They don't know that the rest of the revelation of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, condemns such a teaching and supports the full context of Scripture. You see, why are so many of these men so successful? Why is the why is the church of Latter-day Saints growing exponentially? Why is Pentecostal oneness and, and other denominational stripes that are preaching heresy? Why are they growing by leaps and bounds? Because people don't know their Bible. People don't read the Bible anymore. Just in the casual reading, you will get a sense of what Orthodox theology is supposed to be. That's why so many are taken captive into, into false teaching, number one, because it feeds the flesh. I mean, listen, this stuff's going on right now. There is, there is a schism that is developing in the Methodist church over the, over the, over the acceptance of homosexuality in the clergy. Right now there's a schism. There is a break in the Methodist church over homosexuality. Whether or to ordain uh, homosexual people or to bless same-sex unions. There is a schism in the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church. The African Anglican Church has completely broken away from the communion of the, uh, of the Church of England. Why? Over the blessing of same-sex unions. That has infiltrated the Church of England while, while the church is in the... Uh, the Episcopal, or not Episcopal, the Anglican churches in Africa are staying orthodox by what the Word of God says. Complete schism. Because people are taking their rational thinking. This is what, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about all the time. If you take your rational thinking, your logic, your customs, your evolved knowledge through 2,000 years since the Bible have written and that comes to bear on the Word of God, mark it down, you're heading down the wrong path. You're heading down the wrong path. You, you take the Word of God as it is, as it is to form your doctrine. Notice second of all, not only does he talk about this lasciviousness, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, but the second accusation accusation of Jude is the denial of the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an in indication of polytheism and paganism. 
They deny that there is only one God or that God is something other than the God of the Bible. Now this is most glaringly exemplified in the opposition to Trinitarian theology. I'll admit, yes, the Bible does not contain the word Trinity. But it is undeniable that the Bible again and again supports that although there is one God, that one God is manifest Himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when false teachers monkey around with the foundational teaching from the Word of God, they undermine the most elemental understandings concerning the person of God, who He is. The second accusation is the result of the first. When there is a denial of the true identity of the personhood of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the deity of Jesus Christ is always assailed. It's always attacked. And it's always been attacked since the early days of the, of the Christian church. The deity of Jesus Christ is attacked. All of the cults and isms that ought to become wasms in our day challenge, deform, and outright deny the deity of Jesus Christ. When it comes to the biblical question, what think ye of Christ? Anything less than the redeeming, exalted Son of the living God can be, a cast, can be cast away as false. Jesus is God. In the flesh, manifest the Son of the living God, the redeeming Lamb of God, the highly exalted Son of God. In close, Jude gives us quite an introduction to the different characters and intents of his short letter. My question to you is, do you find yourself in these verses? Are you the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who, as the psalmist said, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. Do you know the security and peace in believing on Christ? In trusting Him? Or are you one of those that the grace of God is your license to do what you please? Well, you know, I'll do whatever and God will forgive me. If you are playing religion, then you are eating a wax apple and thinking that's what it's supposed to taste like. Come to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Come to faith in Him. I know these next weeks are going to be more doctrinal than anything, but the truth of the matter is we need this. Even as small as a, as a fellowship as we are, we need to inoculate ourselves to know what the truth is. If anything comes out of a teaching of Jude, I hope it's this. I'm going to put my nose in this Bible more today, more in the coming weeks, more in the coming years than I ever have before. I want to know what God says in His Word. I want to be able to detect truth and error when it comes my way. Let's stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. The identification. Jude is pointing out who the culprits are. What's important about this letter? If you're here today and don't know the Lord Jesus, I beg you to come. Know Him and save Him. Know His grace, His peace, His mercy, all of these things. Come and know Him today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. God, I pray that as we study the book of Jude, as we go further 
into this book that God, you would remind us of the importance to know why we believe what we believe. To be on guard for those that would try to bend the truth and in doing so that bend in a matter of time will take us far away from what your word says. Take us down roads of relativism and and therapy and psychology and, and rationalism and take us far from what the word of God says. God guard us against that. Father we ask this in Jesus precious name. Amen. And amen. I know this is not the classic invitation hymn, but as we reflect upon what God has taught us from His Word, let's, let's reiterate, let's affirm our admiration and, and uh, our, our allegiance to Jesus Christ. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's, let's sing this hymn together. All hail the power of Jesus' name.